The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Excellent. All right. So today, uh, last week, we looked at the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And we have a series of four talks. I'm assuming that most of you are going to be here for all four of the talks. So I won't go back over uh, what we did last week in much detail, but just to briefly recap, we began with the opening of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta where uh, King Ajatasattu, the king of Magadha, wanted to invade the Vajis. He sent his minister, Vasakara, to ask for the Buddha's opinion. The Buddha gave a, a very diplomatic response. And I pointed out that this, um, uh, this sutta located the, um, uh, located the events of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta in the dramatic changes and challenges that were going on in the time of the Buddha towards the end of the Buddha's life. Thank you so much to everyone for all of your, um, <laughs> all of your responses uh, and great to see so many people from so many different places from New Mexico. Uh, yes, I remember New Mexico. I had a cup of coffee in New Mexico. Severa <laughs> is is where Santara in between uh, Sydney and Canberra. Uh, must be on the train up for the ASA conference. I'm going to be I, I'm going to be zooming into the conference tomorrow as I have talks today and tonight, so I won't be able to make it. All right, so, uh, yes, so the Buddha was um, um, <clears throat> that well, sorry, the compiler, Ananda, who compiled the text, was situating it in the midst of that social and political turmoil and uncertainty, which reflects the unease and the concern of the tradition as a whole for the survival of the Dhamma. Think about it. Think about how many religious movements there are, how many gurus there are, how many different sects and orders and centres and all of these things, and how many actually survive, how many go, you know, even past the death of their founder, much less how many are going to survive longer than that. So it was a very real concern, I think, among those people. It was a really kind of unprecedented thing to imagine that, uh, a tradition could be set up and could be uh, sustained. And so that, that kind of anxiety uh, really permeates the entirety of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Uh, after that, I'm just going to, I won't be reading the whole sutta. We're even in four weeks, we won't nearly have time for that. But I will just briefly uh, recap uh, the details. So the Buddha told the um, seven uh, principles that prevent decline among the Vajins, and then the further principles that prevent decline among the mendicants. After which the Buddha set north from Rajikaha, uh, and he arrived at uh, Nalanda, uh, where he met Venerable Sariputta for the last time, and Sariputta uh, gave his lion's roar of confidence in the Buddha. The Buddha then continued further north to uh, Pataligama, later renamed Pataliputta, the capital of Ashoka, and uh, currently known as Patna on the Ganges uh, River and the Ganges crossing. So this is the major crossing from what was then the Magadhan kingdom to the Vajian Federation. Uh, there he met Vasakara, the Brahman, once more, uh, gave some talks and some teachings before crossing over the Ganges River and into the Vajji Federation. 
uh, once he was there, he visited a town called Nyatika, and a bit of a number of towns, including a town called Nyatika, at which uh, a number of disciples had died. A somewhat curious episode where the Buddha was telling Ananda about where all these disciples had been reborn. And I think I've found the reason why that episode is told and reason why Nyatika, which doesn't feature anywhere else in the suttas, suddenly became so important. Uh, I believe it's the hometown of uh, Nigantanataputta, more commonly known as uh, Mahavira Vardhamana, who was the founder or the leader of the Jain community. And so effectively this is a bit of kind of propaganda saying that uh, even in the hometown of Mahavira uh, was full of disciples of the Buddha. The, Buddha, the suttas aren't above a little bit of propaganda now and then. Uh, okay, so then uh, the Buddha went f- further to um, uh, Vesali uh, before he, where he met the uh, courtesan uh, Ambapali uh, in a very famous uh, event. Uh, Ambapali came to see the Buddha and she uh, donated her uh, mango grove to the Buddha, which later became one of the great monasteries in that region. Uh, and she invited the Buddha for a meal. The leaders of the Vajin clan, the Lichavis, were kind of upset by this and they felt they'd been one-upped by um, Ambapali and they tried to get the meal offering off her, but she refused and the Buddha uh, accepted the meal at Ambapali's. Following that, the Buddha entered the rains nearby to Vesali in a little town called Belua. Uh, and while he was there, or a little bit afterwards, uh, he surrendered his life force. And there's a somewhat complex uh, series of teachings around that, but the main principle there is that the Buddha um, said that in three months' time he would uh, uh, he would become finally extinguished. He would enter Parinibbana. Worth noting that that detail of the three months um, contradicts the date of putting Vesak on in May, uh, and more likely Vesak would have been in. Oh, sorry, more likely the Buddha's Parinibbana would have been in uh, December or January, which is confirmed in addition by the mention of some flowers which were uh, out of season uh, when they uh, blossomed. Uh, but the, the May season, the hot season, is in fact the time when they are in season. So once again, showing that they couldn't have been uh, blossoming out of season in May. So again, supporting the idea that the, the actual date of the Parinibbana was probably in uh, December or January. Moving along, uh, the Buddha gives a number of different teachings, which I will pop over. And famously, he gives the elephant look where he... Um, uh, visits these places for the last time and turns around and uh, uh, gazes back on, them, back on them. And that's probably the closest, just about the closest that you'll find the Buddha uh, coming to um, uh, to sentimentality, really, is when he looked back at those villages. All right. So all of those events all are very interesting and so on, and I'm going to skip over all of them and I'm going to proceed to when the Buddha arrived at Bhoga City. And I'm just going to share the the, um, screen for this. 
I will say, though, if anyone has any particular questions about those events in that period that I've just skipped over, uh, please do let me know. Uh, I'm trying to uh, just, I just want to focus on a few parts of it rather than trying to cover too much. I'd rather cover a few bits uh, well than try to get all of it less well. Um, okay, so I'm now going to share my screen. All right, so here's the beginning of this section that we've reached to. So just a, just a moment to take a breath, just to recall that we've already been on a long journey together and the Buddha's already been through a lot of different things and with Ananda and met so many people and moving steadily, not moving quickly, but just moving steadily little bit by little bit. The way the... Um, Pali suttas are phrased is always very emotionally reserved and tends to be very understated. But the um, but you can imagine that that's kind of swirling around this journey of the Buddha. There would have been a lot of gossip. People have been, oh, where the Buddha is going next? They would have been, oh, what did he say to Ajatasattu? They would have been saying, oh, is war going to come? And all of these kinds of things. So you know, this whole kind of thing would have swirled around it and as he went to these different villages then um, uh, you know there probably would have been quite some commotion there remembering the Buddha was already quite famous by this point. Now we have here a series of villages that the Buddha went to uh, these are all in the uh, uh, still within the Bhaji Federation and I've, I've decided to translate the names of these villages because I think that most of these places in the Bhaji Republic or Bhaji Federation uh, are named after the chief uh, livelihood of the village. And uh, they had this system in Thailand when I was there, basically, that each village would have a particular uh, livelihood. And I think that's what these are named after. One would have been the elephant village, probably elephant trainers, and then the mango village, mango groves, rose apple village. Uh, Bohoga city being an exception, the Boga uh, doesn't mean... Uh, wealth here, which it might mean in some cases, but rather the Bogas were a tribe who were one of the tribes making up the Vaji Federation. So that would have been the capital city of that tribe. Then the Buddha travelled with a large Sangha of mendicants, uh, uh, arriving at Boga City, where he stayed at the Ananda Shrine. Ananda, of course, being quite a common name, so uh, not really uh, named after Venerable Ananda. Uh, but just after something a bit hard to say because it's such a common name. There the Buddha addressed the mendicants. Mendicants, I will teach you the four great references, the four Mahapadesa. And so this is a, um, a, uh, a set of standards or a set of principles that the Buddha used for assessing uh, what is the teaching and what is the Dhamma after he has passed away. There is another set of four great references which are found in the Vinaya, which are a different set, which is kind of a similar kind of idea, but uh, much more limited in application. So the Vinaya four great references are about knowing uh, what is allowable and what isn't allowable by comparison with other things that are allowable. Uh, so you might have seen before, I'm enjoying a nice cup of green tea here. So green tea didn't exist in the time of the Buddha, but there are various things kind of like that, which were allowed in the time of the Buddha. And so uh, these days we 
uh, take this under the full grade standard references as being uh, allowable. So that's the Vinaya full grade references. Um, but in the suttas, the full grade references have a much wider scope of application. And they refer to standards by which the entire Dhamma can be assessed and we can know what is the reliability and authenticity of the tradition. Now, despite the fact that these teachings are very well known and very often cited, there's considerable um, considerable confusion, I think, as to what they actually mean. And the what might appear on the surface to be the most obvious reading of them isn't, in fact, the reading which is uh, explained in the earliest commentaries to this text. So the earliest commentary to this text is, in fact, uh, a late canonical text in Pali called the Neti Pakarana. And Neti Pakarana is a text that sets out to give a method for explaining and interpreting the Buddha's teaching in the suttas. Uh, and so this is kind of its special topic area, uh, and we'll talk about the explanation that it gives uh, soon. But there's basically two, two ways that you can explain this. One is that what's the Dhamma is explained in terms of like a principle of what's right and what's wrong, and the other way is to explain it in terms of a text, like a particular scriptural expression of that principle. And so the question here is, which one is being emphasised? Probably, my view, probably a bit of both, but let's have a look at it in a little bit more detail. So the Buddha says this, Take a mendicant who says, Reverend, I have heard and learned this in the presence of the Buddha. This is the teaching, this is the training, this is the, Buddha's, the teacher's instruction. You should neither approve nor split, or do, nor... Sorry, you should neither approve nor dismiss that mendicant statement. Instead, having carefully memorized those words and phrases, they should fit in the discourse and be exhibited in the training. If they do not fit in the discourse and are not exhibited in the training, you should draw the conclusion clearly this is not the word of the Buddha. It has been incorrectly memorized by that mendicant and so you should reject it. If they do fit in the discourse and are exhibited in the training, you should draw the conclusion clearly this is the word of the Buddha. It has been correctly memorized by that mendicant. You should remember it. This is the first great reference. All right. So this is the first one. Second, third, and fourth great references are similar, but they vary only uh, by the person who makes the claim. The kind of claim and the procedure that's followed are the same only the person. So the first one is a mendicant who heard uh, heard it in the presence of the Buddha, Sammukha Patigahita. The second one is one who claims to live in a Sangha, that is to say a full community, which has many seniors and leaders. So the third one is saying in such a monastery there are several mendicants who are learned and inheritors of the, of the heritage. So that means that rather than there being like a complete community, there's a few individuals who are quite learned and know what they're talking about. And then the last one is that there is a single mendicant who is learned. 
So there's a kind of decreasing uh, standard of reliability, if you like, so from someone who heard it from the Buddha himself to someone who heard it from a Sangha to someone who heard it from a few mendicants to someone who heard it from a single mendicant. And uh, But in each case, the same procedure is to be followed. All right, let's have a little bit more of a close look at the languages being used and what exactly the meaning is. Does this mean, you know, just keep an open mind for now? <laughs> we can at least start with an open mind, even if, we, even if we close our minds down by the end of it. At least we can begin with some kind of openness of mind. All right, uh, this is the teaching, this is the training. Okay, so the first thing is I've heard and learned this in the presence of the Buddha. So that's significant because they're, they're saying that this is, this is definitely a specific scripture, right? It's a particular text, a particular saying, uh, not just sort of a general idea that seems to be wafting around the community. Uh, and Sammukha Patigahitang is the word that is used to mean that you are directly in the Buddha's presence, that you heard it from his own lips. This is the teaching, Dhamma. This is the training, the Vinaya. And this is the Satusasana, the teaching of the Buddha. Uh, so notice you can probably see on the screen the cool little Pali uh, utility that we have here. So you can enable that via the settings here at the top of sort of central uh, under views. And then you can see uh, the Pali look up here and the various other things. Okay. Um, so this is the teaching. This is the training. This is the teacher's instruction. All right. This is the teaching. This is the training. This is the teacher's instruction. Now, on the one hand, it might seem that this is fairly straightforward because the Dhamma is, you know, there's the teaching we find in the suttas. The Vinaya, of course, is the Vinaya Pitika. But then it's a bit kind of odd. Why do we say this is the teaching, this is the training, and, and this is the teacher's instruction, the Satvasasana? Why is that like a separate category? Are these others not the teacher's instruction? Well, presumably they are. So maybe um, uh, rather than being separate things, one teaching, one training, one teacher's instruction, this is, these are just all synonyms for the same thing. And in fact, the normal case in the suttas is that when the word vinaya is used, the word vinaya is used as a word for the, if you like, the practical application of the dhamma. That's why I translate it as training. So when, um, uh, when, uh, when, when people are, are arahants, for example, then the arahantship is described as being raga vinaya, dosa vinaya, moha vinaya, the removal or the dispelling of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so it's that practical application of the Dhamma, which is really meant under the title of Vinaya. Uh, and then later that's formalized as the Vinaya Pitika. So sometimes in the suttas, it means the Vinaya Pitika, like the code of monastic discipline. But very often, probably most commonly, it doesn't mean that. It actually is just a synonym for the Dhamma or the teaching with a special emphasis on the practical application of that teaching. All right, this is the teaching, this is the training, this is the teacher's instruction. I think these are basically synonyms. Uh, and together they are taken in a sense of the uh, entirety of the Buddha's teachings. Uh, and here, uh, as we saw last week, there are some notes. So if you're interested, the notes are there. Um, 
and uh, it gives some references to where these appear in different places. Okay, so now moving on, the next line, you should neither approve nor dismiss that mendicant statement, right? Just stop and think about that for a moment. Imagine what the world would be like if Facebook had rolled out a button saying, I'm going to neither approve nor dismiss. Right? What kind of world would we be living in if that was our response? I'm going to hear what you're saying. I'm going to pay attention because I, because I have respect for you as a human being. So I'm going to listen to what you say. But I'm not going to rush to judge you. I'm not going to assume that I know better. I'm going to listen carefully. Hmm. So maybe, maybe, maybe the solution to all of our problems is that simple. We could just get Facebook to take off the like button and just have a um, neither approve nor disapprove button. I think I've just I think I've just invented the concept of a Buddhist social media platform there. Anyway, so I'll I'll, I'll just hand that over to you guys. You can take that idea and run with it. That's fine. Um, all right, very good. I'm going to share again. All right. Neither approve nor dismiss. Right. So you put into that state almost of like a hovering. Yeah? That's suspension. And to suspend judgment is one of the prerequisites of wisdom. Yeah? To suspend judgment is one of the prerequisites of wisdom. And we live in a world where we are almost uh, sort of railroaded into passing instant judgment about things. And as if the opinion, like and dislike that we have about something is worth anything based on just like an immediate reaction. So from a Buddhist point of view, those kinds of opinions are really kind of worthless. What matters is is an opinion from a perspective of wisdom. Opinions that have wisdom have some space around them. They take some time to sink in. They take some time to sink in. And one of the reasons why I'm emphasizing this aspect of this teaching is that I find that when people, um, I'm going to stop sharing for another minute, when people, um, when people talk about these four great standards or when they talk about Buddhist teachings in general, they often sort of, you, you know, you, you summarize them, but you leave out a lot of these details. You know, so you can summarize the four great references and say, oh, it means that you should compare what somebody says to what it says in the suttas, something like that. And sure, it's not, it's not incorrect as a summary, but it's kind of missing something that's really important about what the Buddha is saying here. It's not, it's not just what it is that we're comparing, but it's the manner in which we compare things as well. And to take time to be slow to give space, and to do that with a spirit of respect and empathy is fundamental to the Buddhist approach. Now, 
action. Instead, having carefully memorized those words and phrases, again, think about that. How many, how often do we take the time to memorize something before we're going to evaluate it? That implies that we're really getting to know it well, spending quite a bit of time with it. Now, these days, the way that we learn things is different. We often don't learn things by memorizing. So it's not saying that you have to necessarily memorize it. It's not the only way you can do it. But it's a reminder. Take some time and care. Really go into it. If you want to, if you want to pass judgment on something, go into it and spend that time. And conversely, you know, if somebody else is passing judgment about something, then um, ask yourself whether they have done that, whether they have taken the time and the effort to, uh, uh, to, to study and to learn exactly what that person is saying, to give that, them that respect. Look, I mean, if you're just giving a review for a, a restaurant or something like that, then maybe it doesn't matter that much. But we're talking about a spiritual training here. And we should take the time uh, to read it. Compare these days with the kind of standard, you know, comment. People be like, well, I didn't read the article, but. And then <laughs> as if their opinions still mean something. Anyway, all right, having carefully memorized, they should fit in the discourse and be exhibited in the training. And these two words also, I think, are quite uh, interesting, very specific. Osaretabani, vinaye. Remember I said that vinaya was about the practical application of things. And the word sandaseta is related to the word, which you may be familiar in Pali, sandiptiko. So if you've done the chanting of the recollection of the Dhamma, one of the qualities of the Dhamma is sandiptiko, meaning apparent in this life. What it means is that if you practice the Dhamma, you can see the outcome in this life. You don't have to wait for a future life. You don't have to wait to get reborn in heaven. You don't have to make a determination to be born as a Buddha in a far future life or something like that. No, no, no. You can see the results of practice here and now in this very life. And that's why I've translated this as be exhibited in the training. So what I think this... So when the uh, Neti explains this, explains the Sutta here as the Four Noble Truths and explains the Vinaya as the, uh, the removal of greed, hate and delusion. So I mentioned before the Neti is the early canonical text on scriptural interpretation. Now the commentaries give a lot of different uh, readings of it. Um, and they say the neti means the vin, the vin, they agree with the neti on the meaning of vinaya, but say that sutta means the entire tripitaka. Now, the very fact that there is this kind of discussion within the community suggests that um, there's a range of readings which are possible. I think clearly there's some sense in which this means, you know, you're actually looking at the scriptures, you know, you're looking at the text. I mean, clearly there's that, that implication is there. But I think what these, these commentaries are saying is that it's not so, you know, it's a kind of balance between the letter and the spirit. Uh, the spirit of the text is to uh, lean towards uh, the removal of greed, hate and delusion. Um, and sorry, I just lost that note. Where are we now? Um, 
Right. And the, the idea of the fitting in, that the teaching should fit in the discourse, if the discourse is the Four Noble Truths, it recalls the elephant's footprint, uh, Sutta, which says that all of the teachings of the Buddha can fit in to the Four Noble Truths, just as the footprints of any animal can fit into an elephant's footprint. So this is really what I think it's saying here, that, that, that these things should be a part of it, that they should be able to fit in and be harmonious with those things. But again, it's not saying that it's not about, you know, comparing with the scripture. It's just saying that you're comparing it by looking at like what the meaning is and understanding the purpose of what those uh, teachings are. So if they do not fit in with the discourse and are not exhibited in the training, you should draw the conclusion. Clearly, this is not the word of the Buddha. It has been incorrectly memorized by the mendicant, and so you should reject it. If they do fit in the discourse and are exhibited, then you should draw the conclusion. This is the word of the Buddha. It has been correctly memorized. This is the first great reference. So I think that there's a really like that that understanding of these uh, four great references has taken me years to get round to this. Like like I've I've looked at this back and again and again over many years, and I've heard many different opinions from different monks, different teachers, different scholars about this. And you know you keep on coming back to this same idea. You know, is it talking about scripture? Is it talking about the purpose of the scripture? But that idea that the teaching is exhibited in this life, I think, is really interesting. Basically, it's it's saying that if you're practicing the Dhamma, it's got to mean something. It's got to make a difference. If you're saying that this is the Dhamma and this is this is the thing that I'm practicing, but it doesn't actually change you. Right? If you end up being the same person you were, then what are you doing? Like, what's the point? So the purpose of the Dhamma is that they should make a meaningful difference. And I, I don't know about you, but I've seen this both in myself and I've seen this in, in so many people, uh, in people's practice, that they, it really does make a difference. And, you know, people will say they come, they come on retreat and they'll do, do a meditation for 10 days and, and they'll say that their, their family will be so happy with them and they come back and they'll say, oh, you really change. I really see a difference in you. And this is a sign that actually there's some, it's actually making a difference. I'll give you one, just one more story about, about this. This was years ago when I was in Perth. I, was, I had a, a wonky knee and I went to a physio to get it looked at. And uh, the guy who did it was this kind of uh, uh, Western guy, Aussie guy who was like a surfy. And I asked him, oh, how did you get into Buddhism? And he said, well, he used to hang around with a bunch of mates and they used to go down surfing and used to hang around and various things. And he said, you know how it is, young guys, sometimes you get in a bit of uh, bit of argy-bargy, a bit of a fight, a bit of an argument, something like that. But <laughs> is argy-bargy an American word? Than Australian, <laughs> it's probably not an Australian either. Anyway, moving on. Um, and so, but he noticed that one of his friends who he was with would always, whenever whenever other people would get angry or upset or something, he'd always kind of just stay away from it, and he'd always just stay calm no matter what the circumstances were. And he saw this happening a few times. And he went up to, to talk to him about it. And he said, look, I've just noticed that when everyone else is getting angry and upset that you're not. What's your secret? And he said, well, come with me on Friday night. We're going to go go to Ajahn Brahm's talk. 
And so <laughs> that's, that's, that's how he came to Buddhism. And to me, that is the best way for Buddhism to spread and for the Dhamma to grow. People will see that it really makes a difference. And that means more than all of the textbooks and all of the suttas and all of the Dhamma talk that people have given. All right. Let us go back and continue. So this is the four great standards. Uh, and as I said before, the rest of them uh, merely change the person uh, rather than changing the procedure. Now, so you can see, obviously, this fits in with the general uh, principle of um, uh, establishing uh, the sasana, establishing the Buddha's dispensation in the period after the Buddha had passed away. Now, then, while he was still at the Ananda Shrine, the Buddha often gave this Dhamma talk to the mendicants, such as ethics, such as immersion, such as wisdom, immersion, that is samadhi, is imbued with ethics, it's very fruitful and beneficial. When wisdom is imbued with immersion, it's very fruitful and beneficial. When the mind is imbued with wisdom, it is rightly freed from the defilements, namely the defilements of sensuality, desire to be reborn, and ignorance. And when the Buddha had stayed at Bhoga city as long as he pleased, he addressed Ananda, come Ananda, let us go to Pava. All right. Now, so now moving on to another episode, uh, another interesting and also uh, controversial episode in terms of the interpretation. Now, Pava uh, itself is an interesting town. It's a bit of background. I mentioned earlier that, uh, I think I mentioned last week, that the leader of the Jains, Mahavira Vardhamana, had passed away not too long before these events. We don't know the exact time. It wasn't like immediately before, but probably some months before perhaps. And uh, we mentioned that the Buddha had visited Nyatika, which was probably his hometown, uh, or at least the main town of his clan, the Nyatika people. Um, Pava is also significant in this context because it was the town where uh, uh, Mahavira died. Um, now, there's some uh, some uh, uh, lack of clarity about this because while the Buddhists and the Jains both agree that Mahavira died in Pava, uh, the Jains say that it was a different Pava uh, east of Nalanda in Magadha. Um, but... Um, anyway, as far as the Buddhist tradition goes, it was at this pava. Um, now, there's a rather curious association that pava has, being the home of Mahavira, of course, you know, belonged to a highly ascetic sect, uh, and the Jains sort of usually kind of look down a bit on the Buddhists as being a bit kind of wishy-washy, a bit kind of indulgent, uh, you know, like we say that we care about animals and things like that, but, you know, we still tread on ants when we walk along the ground and this kind of thing. <clears throat> um, but interestingly, that Pava had also became, become associated with ascetic uh, monks in Buddhism. Uh, so in Sangyutta Nikaya number 15.13, uh, there's a discourse where the Buddha gives a very, um, how do I put this, a very hardcore discourse to these 30 monks. I'll let you look up uh, SN 
15.13, if you want to read one of the most hardcore discourses in the Pali Canon. Uh, Mahakasapa also associated with Pava, uh, since he was near there when he heard the Buddha's passing. And the strict monks from Pava um, were part of the alliance of monks arguing for a strict interpretation of Vinaya in the Second Council. So all of these sort of create a sort of cluster of connotations with Pava as being a place where sort of the real hardcore uh, mendicants are associated with. <clears throat> all right. Then the Buddha, together with a large Sangha of mendicants, arrived at Pava where he stayed in Chunda the Smith's Mango Grove. Now, um, when we read about somebody who's a smith, right, that is a metal worker, uh, doesn't necessarily you know, mean all that much to us. But just remember that uh, in those days, uh, metal work was the most advanced industrial technology. Uh, and in fact, the, um, the, the spread or the advance in civilization that we are seeing at the time of the Buddha was really stimulated by parallel innovations uh, shortly before this time, probably a few hundred years before this time, in pottery and in uh, metalwork, particularly the work of iron. And both of these, of course, requiring a high degree of control of fire. And so these being foundational technologies. And so uh, the time of the Buddha is characterized by what's known as northern black polished ware, which we find mentioned a few times in the suttas, uh, which was a kind of uh, very fine pottery that's distributed through the same cultural region that the Buddha lived in. Uh, and it was also characterized by ironwork, which, of course, led to a lot of uh, advances in terms of um, you know, like farm machinery and various kinds of things, but also led to deadlier warfare. So when, when the Buddha is staying at Chunda the Smith's Mango Grove, it's not like we might think, like staying in someone who's like a, uh, like a mechanic or something like that, but it's more like staying in someone who's a, an engineer or a factory owner, uh, that, uh, you know, quite a, a wealthy person of status in society. Now, Chunda heard the Buddha had arrived and was staying in his mango grove. He went to the Buddha, bowed and sat down to one side. The Buddha encouraged and fired him with a Dhamma talk. And Chunda said to the Buddha, may the Buddha um, accept a meal from me. Now, the Dhamma talk that's given there um, is not uh, stated, but elsewhere, uh, Chunda uh, asks the Buddha, is in the Suttanipata, the Buddha asks the Buddha to give a teaching on the different kinds of ascetics. And he's interested to know which ones are the real ones and which ones are the fake ones. Again, kind of in line with that idea that Pava was a place that was uh, sort of concerned with the strictness of maintaining the ascetic life. So the Buddha goes there for the meal and then follows one of the most curious episodes in the whole of the Buddha's scriptures. Uh, he dressed, Shunda uh, coming to offer the meal, and the Buddha says, uh, and he prepares what's called Sukara Madhava. Yeah? So you can see the Pali here, Sukara Madhava. And not entirely clear exactly what this is. Uh, as you can see from the analysis of the Pali word there, Sukara is a pig or a hog. That's pretty straightforward. Madhava, softness, mildness, a soft thing. Hmm, tender pork, perhaps. 
I've called it pork on the turn. And the reason why is because it's quite a common thing that people will sort of, you know, let your, let your meat hang for a while, uh, let it sort of start to get a bit whiffy, get a bit on the turn, which tenderizes it and gives it more flavor. And, but that's also a risky procedure. If you don't do it right, then you can get bacterial growths, which would explain the fact that the Buddha got sick from it later on. So this is, this is kind of, I think, one explanation for what this phrase Sukhuramadava might mean. Um, others explain it as a kind of mushroom, and there's support for that in a Chinese translation, which calls this tree ears, uh, and like the kind of fungus that grows on trees that looks like ears. So a kind of mushroom or some kind of fungus or something. And there are quite a number of foods in ancient India which have that kind of name, like you begin with sukara or some other kind of animal name, but actually is a kind of vegetable or something like that. So the kind of as a naming conventional pattern, it was uh, what it is found. So it's a bit unclear, and I've translated as pork on the turn, but it could easily be a kind of mushroom. <clears throat> now, one of the things that this is used uh, it for is a in the discussion about people want to make a discussion about whether the Buddha was vegetarian and about whether we should be vegetarian today. So I'll just say a few words about that. First of all, is that as a matter of uh, textual um, procedure, it is unwise to rely on an uncertain passage when making a decision about a controversial or difficult topic. No? It's an unwise procedure. And a lot of people will look at that and then they'll make an argument one way or the other, the Buddha ate meat or that it was mushrooms and the Buddha did ate vegetarian. But in fact, we don't really know what it is. So when I see people making that kind of argument, then it doesn't convince me about what the case is. It convinces me that the person who's making the argument uh, needs to learn to be a bit more careful in the way that they're making textual arguments. In fact, there are a number of places through the suttas as well as through the Vinaya where it makes it clear that the Buddha did eat meat. And eating meat is uh, in the Padimoka rules, one of the regarded as the, the fine foods. Uh, and there's a number of places where that's the case. Personally, I'm a vegetarian. And honestly, I've got to say that when I first came to Buddhism and... Uh, you know, first came to the monastery, uh, basically I loved pretty much everything about it and the main things over time, the main things that have disappointed me uh, about Theravada Buddhism is uh, I guess the treatment of women is number one and vegetarianism is number two. And it's something which is quite, um, how do I put this, it's quite notable. For example, when I was in Malaysia, uh, that you would have like Chinese families who might be brought up from a traditional Mahayana background and they might be vegetarian because of their Mahayana background. And if they started going to a Theravada temple and following, following Theravada Buddhism, and then, then they'd be like, oh, we don't have to be vegetarian anymore and they can start eating meat. And so it's not just something that follows what people use, but it actually encourages people to eat meat, which I think is a great shame. Um, in the context that the Buddha was living, 
of course, is very different from today. There were no factory farms. There was no trawlers trawling the ocean for fish. There was no clear felling of the Amazon to grow beef. And all of those practices that we see today for producing the meat that we eat weren't really there. People would, you know, go down to the local stream and get grab if get a few fish. There would be some chickens clucking around the farmyard. There would be some cows wandering around the countryside. People would go into the forest, although even hunting was restricted, like to particular areas and so on. And so the 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 husbandry uh, and um, uh, industry, if you like, of meat production was very very different. One of the concepts that they had in ancient India for meat eating was what they called pavata mangsa, which means meat that is available. And I think that the significance of that uh, is underestimated when we're thinking about this issue. So the Buddha said you can eat pavata mangsa, meat that is available, but you can't eat meat that has been killed on purpose for you. All right. I think I think what's going on here is that in this kind of society, there was no um, there was no kind of industrialized capacity to change the amount of meat that you were producing to fit your demand. So these days we think of supply and demand, right? More people want meat, therefore more meat will be produced. I don't think that applied. How how would you do that? How what was the actual mechanism by which you're doing that? You didn't have like intensive husbandry. You didn't have breeding programs. How are you going to do these things? The amount of animals that were around would, generally speaking, have been, they're just there. You know, herds of cattle were just there. And so the amount of meat was determined by how many animals were around and not by the demand, relatively speaking. And so I think the idea was that, uh, you know, Uh, The animals were going to be killed anyway because that balance was going to be kept. We hear of times when people were looking for meat in the city, even in a big city like Benares, and there was no meat for sale. So this gives us us an example of an idea of how, you know, relatively small sector of the economy was relatively rare and um, not subject to the same economic principles that we regard meat eating today so personally you know i would much rather if the buddha had said no i'm not going to eat any meat and you should all be vegetarian it would make me happy but uh (laughs) i can't say that what i can say is that there's a difference between what the buddha allowed and what the buddha encouraged and that he would have never said come to your spiritual life and try to get away with it if you can Right? He never said, monks, I urge you, look for the loopholes. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's not how he taught for the Dhamma. He said uh, he called us to aspire to what is better. And, you know, you could well understand that there might have been problems with, you know, if you'd said no meat at all, maybe there'd be some places it'd be hard to get food or people were unwell or different kinds of situations. But we can aspire to do better. And we can certainly aspire to do better in the knowledge that 
the production of meat and the industry of animal husbandry today is horrifying in ways that were unimaginable to people in the Buddha's day, frankly, unimaginable to most people today who really don't know what goes on in all of these places. I won't spoil your day by listing all of the horrors of the factory farms and all of the things that go on in these places. But in terms of their environmental impact, animal welfare impact, uh, and just the uh, the whole kind of toxicity that it introduces into who we are as human beings, I think that we would be much better as a species if we were to become vegetarian or vegan even better. All right, moving along. So the Buddha asked to be served with either pork on the turn or perhaps mushrooms and serve the mendicant sangha with the other foods. Now, this then introduces the second um, uh, quandary here. Like, why? Why would you do that? If you know that the food, there's something wrong with it, what's he doing? Why, why not just say, oh, excuse me, I think that the food's gone off. Maybe we can eat the other things. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing, no rule in the vinny or anything that says you have to eat rotten food and get sick because of it. Why, why did the Buddha go ahead and do it? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Yeah. And I think sometimes mysteries are good. I'm not going to explain it because I can't. Maybe you can explain it. But I think that... Um, I think it's curious that this detail is there. I mean, clearly it has some significance. The only thing that I would say here, I don't want to try to clear up the mystery, but the only thing that I would say is that in the account, some certain accounts of the Buddha's, uh, after the Buddha's enlightenment, of his first meal after enlightenment, have him also getting sick immediately after enlightenment and immediately before Parinibbana. And to me, it's something about the fact that he is stepping out of this mortal coil, you know, it's like everything's shutting down, everything's coming to an end, and and the food is there to sustain him, um, but he no longer needs that as he's stepping beyond conditions. I think it's something that's something to do with that uh, kind of sense. Anyway, so this is what he did. Then any pork on the turn that's left over, you can bury it in a pit. I don't see anyone in this world with its gods, its maras, its population, with its ascetics and brahmins, its gods and humans who could properly digest it, except for the realized one. Uh, that's a fairly dramatic statement to issue when you're having a meal, but uh, there we go. Of course, the irony of it is that the Buddha himself uh, wasn't able to properly digest the food. And I'll just come back to sharing the tab once more. Um, so the Buddha, after teaching him, he left, he fell severely ill with bloody dysentery, uh, struck by painful, dreadful pains close to death. But he endured unbothered with mindfulness and situational awareness, sato sampajano. Now, um, again, this is reminding us of the Buddha's mortality, the fact that he was just a human being, um, it is watch over the next little few passages about how the Buddha behaves as a patient because one of his lessons is how to be a good patient. We see here 
that he is not whining and complaining about his illness. Then he says, come, Ananda, let's go to Kusinara. And so they go off, even though he's very sick. Uh, now, notice that the text here inserts some verses. So these verses are said by the commentary to have been added uh, at the council, presumably the first or second council. Um, and they summarize the events that are proceeding. Now, while they're still on the road to Kusinara, um, the Buddha left the road, went to the root of a certain tree and addressed Ananda, please fold my outer robe in four and spread it out for me. I'm tired and will sit down. So the outer robe, the Sanghati, uh, has two layers so and it's quite large. So you can, if you um, fold it up like that, then it makes quite a nice mat. Uh, still used today uh, for sleeping. So this is one of the things that uh, monastic robes are really good for. They're very flexible. You can use them for all kinds of things. So the Buddha sat on the seat, and when he was seated, he said to Venerable Ananda, please, Ananda, fetch me some water. I am thirsty and will drink. Now, I said before about pay attention to what kind of uh, patient that the Buddha was. And notice that at the beginning, uh, he was not complaining about his sickness. But the other flip side of that is that he clearly expresses what he needs. So Ananda is his carer and his nurse at this point, And he tells Ananda, this is what I need. I need to take a rest. Let's sit down. I need to get some water. And he tells Ananda clearly. So I think this is really a nice little example of good behavior for those of us who are going to end up needing to be cared for at some time. Don't complain too much, but also uh, be clear and telling what it is that you need when you need it. When he said this, Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, Sir, just now about 500 carts have passed by. The shallow water has been churned up by their wheels and it flows cloudy and murky. The Kukuta River is not far away with clear, sweet, cool water, clean with smooth banks, delightful. There the Buddha can drink and cool his limbs. For a second time, the Buddha asked Ananda for a drink, and for a second time, Ananda suggested going to the Kukuta River. And for a third time, the Buddha said to Ananda, fetch me some water, I'm thirsty, and will drink. Yes, sir, replied Ananda. Taking his bowl, he went to the river. And notice that the bowl is the same thing as the arms bowl, so used for both eating and for drinking. Now, though the shallow water in that creek had been churned up by wheels and flowed cloudy and murky, when Ananda approached it, it flowed transparent, clear and unclouded. Then Ananda thought, it's incredible, it's amazing. The realized one has such psychic power and might. For though the shallow water in that creek had been churned up by wheels and flowed cloudy and murky, when I approached it, it flowed transparent, clear and unclouded. Gathering a bowl of drinking water, he went back to the Buddha and said to him, it's incredible, sir, it's amazing. The realized one has such psychic power and might. Then he gave the water to the Buddha and said, saying, drink the water, blessed one, drink the water, holy one. So the Buddha drank the water. Now, of course, this is a very small episode. So I love this little episode in this story. You know, so... Um, inconsequential, if you like. The Buddha just asked for a drink of water. I mean, it couldn't, could hardly be something that's more mundane, more everyday. 
and but just that relationship between the Buddha and Ananda and Ananda trying his best to do what he can to look after the Buddha to to take care of his beloved teacher in these final days and wanting oh we can go there's a nicer place over there we can just go there probably you know probably Ananda maybe underestimating how sick the Buddha was you know the Buddha was being very quiet about it he wasn't complaining so Ananda probably didn't realize um but the Buddha again clear about what he wants just <laughs> just get, but very patient right just get me that glass of water very patient not getting angry with him uh, until Ananda finally goes and gets a glass of water so again to see this as the the kind of the inner reflection of Venerable Ananda you know he's writing himself as the character here and you know you can see these kinds of um, I guess like a vulnerability and sort of uh, emotional openness to admit his faults, which is implied in that narrative. Um, <clears throat> uh, so um, uh, whether the Buddha did use his psychic power to clear the water of the river, uh, I am unable to say or whether perhaps Ananda merely mistook it and it was really clear all along. Also, I'm unable to say. Okay, let's go and have a look at the next one. Remember, the Buddha is now in the Malan country. So the Malas were uh, the neighbours of the Vajis. Uh, some sources say that they were sort of part of the same federation, but others say they were separate but allied. So there's a number of these... Uh, tribes in that region. We've already seen the Lichavis, we've seen the Bahogas, we've seen the Nyatikas, uh, and now the Malas. Uh, further north, the Kolians and the Sakyans were other tribes, and then to the northeast, the uh, Videhans. So all of these tribes in that area had their own kind of region, which was all, at that time, uh, all federated. And uh, Now... Uh, at that time, Pukusa the Mala, uh, a disciple of Alara Kalama, um, was travelling along the road from Kusina, from, between Kusinara and Pava. Now, a slight mistake in my text there. I've already fixed that one. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> um, so what's interesting about... So Pukusa the Mala, we don't know about elsewhere. I think he only appears in this passage. Uh, but uh, the interesting detail, of course, is that he's a disciple of Alara Kalama. Now, Alara Kalama was, of course, one of the Buddha's uh, early teachers. So the Buddha, after he left his home at the age of 29, uh, went and practised in the forest for six years. Uh, and he practised under various teachers and traditions at that time, but prominent among them were Alara Kalama and Uddhika Ramaputta. And the story of his apprenticeship under those two teachers uh, is told in quite some detail in a number of the suttas. Uh, now, it seems uh, from a variety of details that these were Brahmanical teachers who were teaching more or less the teachings of the Upanishads, uh, particularly uh, the teachings uh, of Yajnavalkya, who was the founder of the non-dual uh, school of uh, Brahmanical uh, philosophy. And uh, Yajnavalkya taught that uh, infinite consciousness 
was the uh, highest self, the, the ultimate reality uh, from which this phenomenal world arose and into which it dissolved once more. And these teachings were very influential in the time of the Buddha uh, and we see a number of Brahmanical teachers who appear to be influenced by these ideas in one way or another. Uh, Alaraka Lama uh, uh, here uh, is talking about his meditation teachings uh, and elsewhere uh, there's a, uh, elsewhere Alaraka Lama is, um, gives a teaching which the Buddha criticizes and he gives a teaching about a razor blade and says that it is, uh, you can see it, but you can't see it. You can see it, but you can't see it. So you can see a razor blade when you look at it like this, but when you look at it like that, you can't see it anymore. And the Buddha criticizes this particular teaching of Alaraka Lama and says, what is he talking about? Is this talking about a razor blade? There's no wisdom or anything there. Uh, but in fact, it seems that that teaching is a somewhat garbled version of a teaching from the Upanishads uh, and is uh, more evidence that um, uh, that Alara Kalama was, in fact, a Brahmanical teacher. Uh, I'm just going to call up that exact teaching. That's in the um, Pasadika Sutta. Sorry, that's not Alara Kalama. That was Udhika Ramaputta, my mistake. Uruk who gave that teaching. Uh, and uh, you can see the blade of a razor, but not the um, uh, edge. Uh, but that actually seems to be a reference to Brihadaranika Upanishad 1.4.7, where the self is said to be hidden in the body of a ray, like a razor in its case. People do not see it, Tangna Pasyanti, for they only see the partial and incomplete functions of the self, such as breathing, speaking, and so on. Seeing only these aspects, they do not see that each aspect is an expression of the one whole. Uh, so this passage uh, that's quoted, that's in DN29 that that passage is quoted, uh, that to me uh, provides a strong confirmation that Udhikaram Putta and presumably Alara Kalama also were in fact Brahmanical teachings, and that seems to be drawing directly upon a teaching in the Upanishads. Okay, so uh, then he sees the Buddha, uh, Pukusa sees the Buddha, and then he says, incredible, it's amazing how those gone forth remain in such peaceful meditations. Now, one thing that's just interesting about, you know, that's just, a, that's just a, again, just a small aside there, but it's worth noticing that uh, it's not a partisan comment, right? He's, he's impressed by people who are meditating, impressed by the peace that they, they reach. Uh, and he's not particularly fussed about the fact that it's a Buddhist or whatever. So once it happened, he goes on to tell about his own teacher, that Alara Kalama, while travelling along the road, left the road and sat at the root of a nearby tree for the day's meditation. Then about 500 carts passed by right next to Alara Kalama. A certain person coming up behind those carts went up to Alara Kalama and said to him, Sir, didn't you see the 500 carts pass by? And uh, he said, No, friend, I didn't see them. But, Sir, didn't you hear a sound? No, friend, I didn't hear a sound. But, Sir, were you asleep? No, friend, I wasn't asleep. But, Sir, were you conscious? Yes, friend. So, Sir, while conscious and awake, you neither saw nor heard a sound as 500 carts passed by right next to you. Why, sir, 
even your outer robe is covered with dust. Yes, friend. Then that person said, it's incredible. It's amazing. Those who have gone forth remain in such peaceful meditations in that while conscious and awake, he neither saw nor heard a sound as 500 carts passed right by next to him. So this is a good reminder next time that um, maybe you're meditating and you hear traffic noise, uh, then remind yourself it didn't bother Alara Kalama, so why should it bother you? And it's, a, uh, it's one of the examples in the suttas that show the depth and the profundity of what we call samadhi. And I know this, is, this, this has become, uh, in modern Buddhist circles, become a sort of somewhat controversial topic in recent years. Uh, you know, to what, what, how deep a state of mind do we, are we talking about when we talk about samadhi or we're talking about jhanas? Uh, and I think, you know, for me, I'm not, I'm not going to go into that in too much detail, but this is giving us one example of uh, the depth of the state of samadhi that people are talking about. And, you know, a reminder that these states were things that people literally left behind everything in the world to go and practice. They gave up everything and they went up into the Himalayas or into the depths of the forest and did nothing but practice meditation day in, day out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out, in order to attain and to realise these states, which is why they're talking about something which is quite profound. Going on, now the Buddha, this, this is a bit of a, uh, bit of a, um, uh, I'm just trying to think of a nice word for it, um, you know, a bit of a uh, bit of a boxing match here, I guess, between the two. Like no one's, no one's, um, the Buddha's not going to let that one pass so easily. Uh, so the Buddha says, uh, what do you think, Pukusa? Which is harder and more challenging to do while conscious and awake? To neither see nor hear a sound as 500 carts pass you by right next to you or to neither see nor hear a sound as it's raining and pouring, lightning's flashing and thunder's cracking. And Pukusa says, what do 500 cards matter, or 600, or 700, or 800, or 900, or 1,000, or even 100,000 cards? It's far more challenging and harder to see neither see nor hear a sound as it's raining and pouring, lightning's flashing and thunder's cracking. The Buddha goes on, this one time Pukusa, I was staying near Atma. So again, just kind of notice the Buddha's rhetorical technique. He does these kinds of things so commonly that you don't really notice it. He doesn't start out by contradicting what the what, the, what Pukusa's teacher did or by criticising what Pukusa's teacher, teaching did. Right? I mean, that's the, you know, normally you might say something like that. You might say, oh, well, that's nothing. Oh, you know, well, I could do better than that. But he's not saying that. First thing he does is find a point of agreement. Right? Speak to Pukusa in a way and say, well, let's find this common ground. Which one is better, this one or that? Then he goes on. Well, this one time Pukusa was staying near Atuma in a threshing hut, Akuma just down the road from where they were at the time. At that time it was raining and pouring, lightning was flashing and thunder was cracking. And not far from the threshing hut, two farmers who were brothers were killed, as well as four oxen. Then a large crowd came from Atama to the place. And at that time I came out of the threshing hut and was walking mindfully in the open near the door of the hut. Having left that crowd, a certain person approached me, bowed and stood to one side. I said to them, why, friend, has this crowd gathered? Just now, sir, it was raining and pouring. Lightning was flashing and thunder was cracking. 
and two farmers who were brothers were killed as well as four oxen. Then this crowd gathered here. But sir, where were you? I was right here, friend. But sir, did you see? No, friend, I didn't see anything. Didn't you hear a sound? No, sir, I didn't hear a sound. Were you asleep? No, friend, I wasn't asleep. Were you conscious? Yes, friend. So while conscious and awake, you neither saw nor heard a sound as it was raining and pouring, lightning was flashing and thunder was cracking. Yes, friend. And that person thought it's incredible. It's amazing. Those who have gone forth remain in such peaceful meditations in that while conscious and awake, he neither saw nor heard a sound as it was cracking and pouring, lightning was flashing and thunder was cracking. After declaring their lofty confidence in me, they bowed and respectfully circled me, keeping me to their right before leaving. When he said this, Pukasa said to him, any confidence I had in Alara Kalama, I sweep away as in a strong wind or float away as down a swift stream. Excellent, sir. Excellent. As if you were writing the overturned or revealing the hidden or pointing out the path to the lost or lighting a lamp in the dark so people with good eyes can see what's there. The Buddha has made the teaching clear in many ways. I go for refuge to the Buddha, to the teaching and to the mendicant Sangha. From this day forth, may the Buddha remember me as a lay follower who has gone for refuge for life. Uh, so then the Buddha uh, offered, uh, sorry, then Pukasa offered some robes the colour of gold uh, to the Buddha. But I'll just stop sharing uh, there. So, um, you know, I mentioned before that sort of one of the, you know, this, this whole sutta the, the, is kind of jockeying, you know, um, jockeying like the Buddhist narrative is jockeying for a place here between uh, Ajatasattu and his kind of expansionist imperial ambitions and then the, the, the Vajji Federation and, and their kind of um, need for security. On the, so on the one hand, that political security, but also jockeying for a place among the different, the complex religious context at the time. Uh, and we've seen a kind of implicit uh, uh, criticism or rebuttal of the uh, Jain approach. And here also uh, the Buddha sort of standing up uh, for uh, the Brahmins who were kind of the leading exponents of meditation uh, in that uh, in that time. But again, not doing so in an aggressive or really polemical way, but just sort of in an assertive way where, you know, you're saying that, that we're, not, we're not intimidated by these kinds of things. All right. Um, so I might just leave. We got a lot of comments in the chat there. I'm going to go through and have a look at those and hopefully get a chance to answer them. I think we have about 15 minutes left in the session, so we'll see how we go with that. Um, but I probably won't read any more right now. Okay, so IIT, interesting. IIT, you always come up with something interesting uh, in these things, so thank you very much for that. Uh, from the, the Kannada English Dictionary, Sukramadava kind of fungus, Kannada being a Dravidian language, maybe, although I would kind of suspect that it's probably just drawn from the Buddhist usage there because some people, so many people say it's fungus. You, it's, it's quite a, um, to explain Sukaramadva as mushroom is a, is a common narrative in India uh, because people are very pro-vegetarian there uh, and so you do find this. So I, I would want to check um, that that hadn't been contaminated 
that entry hadn't been contaminated before reaching any conclusions. Uh, <clears throat> uh, IIT points out that we often see wealthy Brahmins uh, described in the Pali text by how many head of cattle that they have. Yes, that's true. So they, they, they would have these herds of cattle, and you see that in the Brahmanical text as well. Uh, when Yajnavalkya gave teachings, uh, King Janaka gave him a sort of a large herd of cattle uh, as payment for those teachings and so on. But the point here is not that they didn't have herds of cattle, but they, they didn't have that kind of that mindset that would be like, oh, we're now going to increase or decrease the herd. Or we're now going to be breeding them in this way or whatever. I mean, you'd have your lands and you'd maintain your cattle on them, uh, but there wasn't the same kind of industrialized trade in that. I mean, it's really only in the industrial era that you can uh, sort of mechanically expand these things by, you know, by using fertilizers and so on and so forth, which allow you to expand your feedstock and so on. Like you're always limited by the parameters of the world around you. You know, there's only so much grass and ultimately, you know, you, you can only grow, you can only raise so many cows on there. Anyway, um, so somebody uh, from Aranyabodhi asks, um, do eggs count as meat according to the Dhammavinaya? I do not believe so. I think eggs might be um, might be one of those curious things that are kind of omitted in the vineyard. I can't really recall, but I don't think there's that much mention of eggs in the vineyard. So maybe it, maybe they weren't a large part of the uh, diet at the time. Uh, but look, you, you don't take my word for that. You probably want to to check the details on that one. Um, <laughs> So now uh, comments that normal people, when they do a Google review, it says, I'll give a zero star if possible, bad service, food was burnt, way overpriced, won't come back. Um, whereas the Buddha says you should bury it in a pit. I don't see anyone in the world with its gods, maras and brahmins who could probably digest it. <laughs> I, what you're saying is that you're going to leave that as your comment on the next Yelp review at the next restaurant that you go to. I think that was... <laughs> Maybe maybe this is like the first maybe the, maybe the Buddha was the one who pioneered the restaurant review. I, I don't know if there's a there's a uh, maybe he invented the whole concept of Yelp. I don't know. Um, uh, where are we going now? Ah, uh, yes, okay. Uh, so uh, Diriyupa makes a comment that uh, Adam Brahm said that a pupil may want to, to see or tell others that their teacher has psychic powers. Not because the teacher has it, but because deep down the pupil wants to be associated with someone great. Ah, yeah, that's a really good point, yeah? That's very insightful. Um, so the Buddha was, of course, very, uh, you know, very kind of cautious about these things and very kind of reluctant to uh, display them. Um, um, please, comments on move to the side or sat down to the right. So there's an idiom in Pali, ekamantang nisidi, uh, literally sat down to one side, um, which I think I think just is a kind of a um, uh, it's just a kind of a polite posture. I think if you I think if you're if you're meeting someone, right, think like like if you sit like directly in front of them and facing them, it's kind of it's a bit confrontational. It's a bit aggressive, and but if you sit down to one side a little bit then it's a bit more kind of deferential and a bit more um, respecting their personal space. So I think this is that kind of idiom about sitting down to one side. So Sumana asks, um, 
I'm sorry for asking this. Please don't be sorry. Never be sorry. Wonder if the Buddha is in food. Um, so, someone asked whether whether perhaps the Buddha um, ate Chunda's food in order that he would make the merit from making the offering. Okay, but I mean, surely he would have made just as much merit if he'd eaten the other food, right? Remember, there was a lot of monks there. And they all ate perfectly well. Why couldn't I, I don't I don't know. Maybe. Um. <laughs> so Melanie says she's also wondering. Ah, wondering. Good state of mind to be in about the Buddha's decision to eat the uh, spoiled food. Would you be willing to share some theories? <sighs> Look, I'm not. I, I, like I said, I, I honestly don't really know, but what I, sus I suspect that um, I suspect that it's 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 you know rather than considering it purely in terms of uh, like you know food that's gone bad, then to consider it in terms of the cultural and ritual connotations of food, like food was. Uh, food is fundamental right throughout the the um, Upanishads as Anna is being something which is essentially a gift from God right so 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 from a Brahmanical perspective life is that which is created by Brahma and created by God and so Anna which is food is that essence of the divine which sustains us to live in this material world and so it has a very profound spiritual sense. And that profound spiritual sense is also represented through very complex rules about eating, about who you can eat with, and about who can share food with who and under what circumstances, uh, and all of these kinds of things. So there's a kind of complex um, sort of ritual and social um, array of beliefs and customs which are associated with eating food, which come into play here. And again, I'm I'm not in, entirely. I don't I don't think that I can sort of sort through that. I've made some effort to do it, but I haven't been able to really sort of dig down to it. But I think it has something to do with that. Uh, anyway, moving on. Neither uh, improve. So Kaz uh, expresses gratitude for the comments that are helpful to apply every day with neither approve nor dismiss to not immediately judge or react, which is uh, reminds you of right speech, which is sometimes to remain in silence for a while. And, you know, and I think that um, silence is also like the more space there is around your speech, the more people will hear it. And, Yes, I know often it seems like it's those who speak the fastest and speak the loudest who will be listened to. And, uh, you know, I know that if you look on a lot of television and stuff these days, you see the way that people talk. I think it's horrifying. People just talking over each other all the time. How can anyone make sense of this? It's just nonsense. And so we should try to create contexts that value and appreciate silence. And the, the more space there is around words, then the more words that those depths will be perceived with. 
so Gita says, uh, thank you for all your tireless Dhamma teachings. Oh, thank you so much, Gita. That's very kind of you. I don't know about tireless, though. But anyway, moving on. Bhante, <laughs> but is there any um, sort of evidence concerning the month that Gautama uh, attained full enlightenment? I don't believe so, although I might have to get back to you on that. But so far, I haven't seen any any way of being able to test that. So uh, as far as I can tell, uh, Waisak still as good a month as any for celebrating the Buddha's enlightenment. Um, so Charles Lee, Charles Lee says, thanks and so amazing to be on a Zoom with so many monastics. It is indeed, isn't it? Yes, wonderful to see our friends IAT and uh, Venerable Dhammavara and Venerable Satima from Aranyabodhi and uh, so many others uh, who are coming and joining us. Uh, it is really a great honour and uh, to see them as well as to see uh, everybody else, of course. Um, what are the chances of a seventh Buddhist council occurring? Hmm. And the Vinaya being updated to explicitly prohibit monks from eating meat. Do you know if this issue was discussed at the sixth Buddhist council? Okay, well, the, the okay, uh, um, what's the chances of a seventh Buddhist council? Slim at best. Slim at best. Um, was that issue discussed at the Sixth Council? Not so far as I know. Um, uh, it's difficult to get too much detail about exactly what transpired at the Sixth Council. Um, so this was held in Myanmar in the 1950s. Um, but um, certainly there were major contingents of uh, Sangha from uh, Sri Lanka and Thailand and different places as well as from Myanmar. Uh, so I'm sure that they discussed different things, but mostly they were concerned with the uh, preservation of the Tripitaka. So the main purpose was to ensure that there was a unified uh, Tripitaka text and to check all the different versions and so on. So, uh, no, they weren't interested in revising things. Um, so, look, the, 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 it, it, that's just not how things work, right? This is a two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old scripture. You don't revise it, okay? It's just, just not how things work. What you do is you can interpret it and you can uh, adapt the way that you understand it and the way you practice it. And that process has been going on since the Vinaya rules were first laid, laid down. We see that within the Padimokha itself, the Buddha laid down a rule and then a new circumstance came up and the Buddha said, okay, I'll change it. And at a certain point, the text itself becomes frozen. But, you know, we can still interpret it, we can decide it. The, the, the rules of the Vinaya are not ironclad and they're not, um, uh, they're not harsh or punitive. Right? There's no, nothing happens, you know, like there's a rule against not eating in the afternoon, right? But nothing happens to you if you do eat in the afternoon. You just confess it to someone, say, I ate in the afternoon. It's, it's like it's not, it's not like the end of the world if any of these things happen. There's a few that are expulsion offences and so on. But most of the time the veneer is, in fact, very gentle. And so different communities all around the world uh, uh, interpret the vineyard differently. Uh, certainly I think that it's good to encourage communities to be vegetarian so far as possible. 
uh, and uh, there are many communities that are vegetarian, uh, and I think that that's a uh, I think that's a good thing. I think we should encourage it, but um, no, you're not going to get everybody to agree either on a second council. Number one, <laughs> number two, you're not going to get them to agree to change anything, and number three, you're not going to get to agree them to give up eating meat. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Rati, I believe, Rati says, uh, why is it always on the right when walking or leaving the Buddha, then the Buddha's left on the right side? So it's just a, that's a gesture of respect. So it's the padakina. So the right side is exposed uh, so that it has no, there's no weapons or anything like that. And the right side was felt to be the respectful side. So that's all that that, that was, uh, that's the convention. Do you think the Buddha could have had a psychedelic experience due to food poisoning prior to his Parinibbana? Ah, oh, interesting. I haven't heard that one, but um, do I think he could have had? I mean, if he was eating mushrooms, so you think that <laughs> the whole thing was a bad trip? Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe that could have been like the reveal at the end of it. The Buddha woke up, oh, it was all just a bad trip after all. No, um, I think it's un <laughs> I think it's I think it's unlikely, um, but I wasn't there, so I couldn't say couldn't say it's impossible. All right, uh, so uh, Gita says uh, thank you once more, and that they're blessed to hear this profound dhamma. And may I enjoy longevity with good health. Oh, thank you so very much. That's very kind. I did a talk uh, yesterday, last night, on mudita and on congratulations and on about the fact that when uh, something good happens, then we should uh, acknowledge it. And so when people thank me, I always try to set a good example uh, with that because I really do appreciate it and I appreciate the support that uh, you all give. And I appreciate the fact that you're all um, coming and uh, paying attention. Um, uh, so it looks like we've, we've run out of time now. Uh, so so far we've we've covered I can uh, uh, we've covered uh, from the beginning of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta roughly about halfway, uh, and from next week we'll pick up closer to the time of the Buddha's actual passing away. Uh, and so until then, uh, may you be happy. Uh, for all the venerables here, uh, I wish you all of the best and may you prosper and thrive in the Buddha's teachings. And for all of the wonderful lay folk who have joined us, may you to thrive and be happy in the Dhamma. And may the teachings of the suttas and the teachings of the Buddha take care of you. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Bhante. 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 Thank you, Bhante.